This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, little was known about how the virus affected pregnant women, children, and people living with disabilities. But one government leader led the efforts to understand the impacts. And for the last decade, a federal employee has fought to bring down levels of one of the worst greenhouse gases. She's credited with leading an international effort that will reduce global warming. Then, Voice of America is a government-funded international news outlet. But in 2020, it became the news after a string of controversial decisions by its former leader. The current acting director discusses her efforts to heal the agency. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the federal government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Today, we're talking with three government leaders who are finalists for a Service to America medal. They're being recognized for their outstanding contributions to their fields. First is Dr. Diana Bianchi, the director of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Dr. Bianchi, welcome to the program. Thank you. You help launch uh, a lot of, uh, of large-scale studies that um, at the, car- at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. But I wanna start with the effect of the COVID vaccine on pregnant women. What did the research find about that? Well, bottom line is the research has shown that there are no adverse effects to pregnant women if they get vaccinated. Actually, unvaccinated women are at high risk, if they're pregnant, at high risk compared to women of the same age of going on a ventilator, having severe pregnancy complications like hemorrhage, preterm birth, and stillbirth. So our funded research has shown that getting vaccinated uh, does help avoid these complications. But how do you do safe research on pregnant women without putting them at risk, them and their fetuses? That is an extremely important question. And in general, pregnant women are often considered last because Formerly, they were considered to be a vulnerable population. They are no longer considered to be vulnerable, and our institute has been very strong in terms of advocating for including pregnant people safely in research protocols. So one of the difficulties with COVID was everything happened so fast. The vaccine was given first to older adults, and uh, our concern was there was no initial plan for pregnant women. So we had to rely on information collected by other agencies, but we also um, later on did studies to show that the vaccine was safe. You know, you said this, uh, quote, pregnant people need to be protected by research, not from research. Exactly. Explain that. There has been, in general, a very protective attitude towards pregnant people. Pregnant people are, are adults. They're capable of making their own decisions. And if explained properly, um, in this case, a lot of healthcare workers, for example, if they were pregnant, took the vaccine early, knowing that their risk of acquiring COVID was higher than the risk of the vaccine. We've argued that pregnant women need to be considered in all studies. There needs to be a plan. You need to do studies on pregnant um, 
models, uh, such as you know, animals, to see if there's any evidence of birth defects as a result of the vaccine. You also funded research on uh, the effects of COVID on children. What did you find? Well, COVID initially was not thought to be a problem for children. Back in the beginning of the pandemic, it was thought that children were healthy, they would recover. And it re really wasn't until May of 2020 with the first reports of the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, that we realized it could be very serious, requiring ICU admission and possibly death in children. So that really ramped up our efforts to be able to do studies to test medications that were being used in adults, such as remdesivir, on children to see if they could be treated safely. And then we funded studies to see, to predict actually who would be at risk for developing this serious consequence called MISC. And we've made enormous progress and we'll have point of care tests coming out in the new, near future to test which children are at risk for developing this complication. But right now, kids are back in school. Um, mostly, they're not masked. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, our studies have shown that masks are effective. Um, you know, the children who need to look at lips, for example, for lip reading can still uh, learn with masks on. Uh, you know, children have learned to interpret facial expressions from above the mask. Our studies have shown conclusively that masks do work. However, we recognize that in some communities that is, that is not the choice, but our research was, was aimed at getting children back to school as soon as possible because children have suffered by not being in school. And whether it's not receiving services that they might need or lunches or breakfasts or exercise or psychological services, you know, the, the children are so much a part of the puzzle of America and they need to be in school so that the parents can go back to work as well. So we initially focus on getting children back to school safely, looking at different mitigation strategies, masking, hand washing, social distancing, et cetera, and now keeping them in school safely because we know that children need to be in school and they wanna be in school. You know, in general, when it comes to federally funded medical research, how do we ensure that pregnant women, children, those living with disabilities aren't excluded from the beginning of, those, of that research? We need to speak up, and this is what all of the staff members in our institute do every day. We advocate for these specific populations so that they are not forgotten. Um, they are very, very important for the future of America. All right. Well, Dr. Bianchi, appreciate all your efforts, and thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up later on Government Matters, Voice of America's acting director. But first, hydrofluorocarbons are one of the most common greenhouse gases. Up next, an EPA leader got over 100 countries to agree to cut their consumption and slow the effects of climate change. We'll be right back. In 2019, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol went into effect. Its goal is to reduce hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, and reduce the impacts of climate change. Cindy Newberg is the director of the Stratospheric Protection Division within the EPA and helped lead negotiations for that amendment. Cindy, welcome to the program. Thank you. So first explain what HFCs are and why are they so bad for the environment? 
Sure. Hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, actually are quite important to society. They provide cooling and air conditioning systems. They propel aerosols. They're used in foam products. But they're also global warming gases. They have high global warming potential. So compared to something like carbon dioxide, which we always think of, HFCs have global warming potentials that are hundreds to thousands of times more potent. And so while they're helpful in running our air conditioning systems, we also want to make sure that they're not emitted to the atmosphere and that they're properly taken care of. So are there other substances that can be used instead of HFCs that can do this, those same beneficial things? There are, and there are emerging new technologies that also reduce the amount of HFCs that someone may need to use in a particular application. This is all sort of progress from when we used to use ozone-depleting substances that were also obviously bad for the environment, bad for human health. HFCs were a substitute for those, and as technology continues to progress, we're seeing more substitutes come on the market that will replace HFCs. So what does the Kigali Amendment do? The Kigali Amendment's a global agreement under the Montreal Protocol. Um, the Montreal Protocol is a treaty that was ratified by all countries. It's, it's unique in that sense that everyone is a party to it. And the Kigali Amendment will address HFCs in the same way we address the ozone-depleting substances, by phasing down their global production and their global use over a period of time. And what have we seen in the U.S. as far as reduction of HFCs? We're beginning to see HFCs be reduced in terms of how they're being used and managed. Under the uh, American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, our domestic legislation to implement the Kigali Amendment or to implement our domestic phase down of HFCs, we are beginning to um, set our baseline, which we set last year, and to take our first step, we've already reduced 10% of production and import of HFCs in the United States. And moving forward, we'll take additional steps. In 2024, we'll take another step to reduce further. And our goal is to reduce by 85%. So over 15 years, we're going to reduce by 85% our production and import of these chemicals. So the U.S. is the only country that's involved that has not ratified this amendment. Is that, um, is that true? There's actually other countries that have not ratified. But um, why, haven't, why hasn't the U.S. done that? And what's, what's going on in Congress? Well, actually, the U.S. has taken a lot of steps towards ratification. Um, recently, they are, there was a vote in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that voted the treaty out of committee. Um, so the next step would be for the full Senate to um, take a vote on the floor um, to consider the amendment. And then after that, it would be up to um, the president to go ahead and, and give us the opportunity to join the amendment. It is a process. It takes time. It's not something that we take lightly as the U.S. government, and it needs to be considered. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, we are not the only country that hasn't ratified, though there are a number of countries that have already ratified, and of course we want to be amongst those. And what difference will that make if we do get ratification? This is a global agreement, and being part of that global community that's implementing the Montreal Protocol is really important. We play an important leadership role. Um, EPA and State Department in particular work together um, to ensure that we are represented and where the protocol is being discussed. And this really concerns trade and implementation and, and technology in the United States. Our companies, U.S. companies, have been on the forefront of developing alternatives, and we want to see those companies be successful. And so it's important for us to be part of that global community. I wanted to ask you about companies and equipment manufacturers because typically they're not going to be too excited about the EPA coming in and saying, hey, there's more regulation for you to uh, adhere to. 
So how did you work with them? How did you get buy-in? What's their reaction been? I think that we're very lucky in a lot of ways. We've had um, a very long history of working with both the environmental groups and the industry, and both the equipment manufacturers as well as the chemical manufacturers. And so as we were thinking about how would we structure a uh, phase down of HFCs, how would we address all of the challenges that one sees with making such huge changes in uh, how chemicals are used. We, we had a lot of contact and a lot of constant discussion with folks, bringing them in, stakeholder meetings, an open dialogue, and making sure that we are cognizant of where their challenges are. What can be done, also what can't be done? What are the ways we can address those, and how do we work together as the government, with industry, with environmental groups, and really at, with the public generally to make sure that what we are achieving, what we're trying to achieve by phasing down HFCs is done so in a way in which everybody has buy-in. And we've been really very um, fortunate to have a good group of um, industry to work with who are positive, who want to see us succeed, all of us succeed. You've been uh, at the EPA for like three decades. So what were some of the um, initiatives that you worked on early in your career that you feel prepared you for leading these negotiations on the Kigali Amendment? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. When I joined EPA, it was right after Congress had passed the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. And so we were just starting our work uh, in a lot of areas, and for me in particular, on ozone layer protection. And so I got to be there in the early days when we were first standing up our phase out of ozone depleting substances. People forget, we phased out CFCs. We phased out their replacement chemicals, HCFCs. Most people haven't even noticed those changes happen. So for me, working on initiatives where we were able to change the class of chemicals that people were using to cool their air conditioning in their cars. We're now on the third set of substances cooling cars since the early 1990s. Folks haven't noticed. For us, that's a, that, for me, that's actually something I look at and I say, that's a success story. We made changes, we improved the environment, and you know, my mom's happy. Her car still gives her the cooling she wants. All right, well, Cindy, appreciate your work on that, and thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. The federal government funds a news outlet that broadcasts to dozens of countries. Just ahead on Government Matters, the leader of Voice of America on the challenges the organization faces from the inside out. We'll be right back. Voice of America is a unique news organization because it's funded by the federal government. Yolanda Lopez is VOA's acting director. Yolanda, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. First, tell me about the mission of VOA. Well, the mission of the VOA is uh, um, to provide news and information around the, the world, and to promote uh, press freedom, democratic values, human rights, and our mission, it is, uh, um, again, around the world, so uh, we cater to an international audience. So that is why probably here inside the United States, a lot of people don't know about Voice of America, but uh, um, make no mistake, we are very famous and, and popular around the world. So you've, you've talked about the idea of, quote, public service journalism. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? A public service journalism, it is uh, um, the kind of journalism that I think that everybody that starts studying journalism <laughs> wants to do, like to hold uh, the powerful accountable, to provide a voice to the voiceless, and to provide uh, solutions. And that is then somehow along the way, uh, some of those values, uh, especially maybe if you go to the private sector, those are a little bit more difficult to accomplish. But 
But when you work um, in an organization like the Voice of Americas, that's actually what we have to do, because we have to measure our impact uh, that way in how we are making uh, changes, how we are promoting democratic values, how we are promoting uh, uh, free press. So that is the, the kind of journalism that uh, Voice of America does. But what do you mean by promoting free press? How, how does your organization do that overseas? So we do that first, our bread and butter is uh, covering the news, and covering the news in an unbiased, unbalanced uh, way, a compre uh, comprehensive way, um, but also by uh, helping local journalists in uh, regions where uh, there is no uh, press freedom and to make sure that uh, they have the tools and they have the knowledge uh, to do their work and they to do their work uh, safely. And we also uh, promote a free press by um, in regions like, by instance, we are present in, in China, in Iran, in Russia. Obviously, the, these are uh, regions where there is no press freedom, but we, we try to reach those, those uh, audiences. And it's dangerous as well and it for is journalists. Dangerous. So we have to provide these tools to our journalists uh, to, make, uh, to make sure that they are safe while uh, doing their work, but also to our audiences. We provide them with circumvention tools so they can reach our uh, content safely, because in some countries, to read, to hear, to listen, to uh, access our content is dangerous. So we have to protect our audiences as well. Circumvention tools, how? How do you get around censorship? Oh, you get around uh, censorship with, again, with those circumvention uh, tools that uh, we provide our audience where they can download uh, like VPNs, uh, things like that, uh, um, tools like that, that uh, where they can access our content, not only our content, but they can access uh, everybody else's uh, content. Uh, and you kind of go, around uh, the censorship that uh, that particular country is. You, uh, were, you were named acting director uh, the day after President Biden's inauguration. Set the stage for us. What was VOA like when you took over? When I took over, uh, VOA was, uh, there was a lot of mistrust from the employees uh, to upper management. And also remember, we were in the midst of the pandemic. There were no vaccines at that time. Uh, so it was a very scary, dark, uh, time for all of us um, in, in VOA. But the thing is that because I had been working at VOA at that time uh, for more than five years, um, it was uh, really uh, took over and, and hit the, the ground running um, because I already uh, knew this, these challenges. I had been through those challenges uh, myself. Um, so um, even though it was, uh, it was difficult, uh, it was a difficult situation uh, for all of us, uh, we um, started, uh, you know, listening to the employees, open up, uh, uh, you know, the uh, management, all the managers um, opened up uh, uh, to everyone. Um, first, again, we listened to what the, uh, their fears, uh, their complaints, their concerns, and we started addressing those concerns uh, right away um, because uh, we do believe that the employees are taken care of, they are going to deliver the best product for our audience and to deliver that product and the news and uh, to our audience. Um, it is important that employees believe in the mission and that they trust that we are doing, uh, management is doing what they can, uh, you know, to fulfill that mission. I want to ask you about Afghanistan because it's been a mm -hmm. year since the yes. U.S. Uh, troops pulled out. Um, how did you help get uh, VOA journalists out of Afghanistan safely? That was uh, the most difficult time in my entire career not only in VOA, but as a journalist, as a human being. 
period. Um, it was very, very difficult. There are still some things that I'd rather not to talk to because of uh, privacy and confidentiality and safety uh, concerns uh, for our journalists. But it was uh, uh, very difficult. It took us a lot of time. It took us a lot of um, knocking door on, on doors and um, making a lot of phone calls. And uh, we did manage uh, to evacuate, because it wasn't just about the journalists, it's also about their families. Um, because uh, you can uh, evacuate a journalist, but if the, the family continues to be there and, and the Taliban knows, um, that can be uh, challenging for them. So again, without going into details, it was, um, it was uh, difficult. We uh, have the, the, the help of a lot of people, um, not only uh, governments, but also um, you know, um, NGOs and other news organizations. Like, you know, uh, the silver lining of all of it is like uh, uh, the BBC, Deutsche Welle, uh, Voice of America. We uh, work together on making sure that we were um, offering uh, the, the, you know, this help and to evacuate uh, people. And not only our journalists, if we could also help other journalists, not only from Voice of America, but also for, uh, from other institutions, we will uh, help. So there was a lot of, um, you know, collaboration just to make sure that everybody was, um, you know, leaving the country safely. And, and we're, we're just about out of time, um, yeah. but I wanted to ask you just very quickly mm -hmm. about Ukraine and how you're getting news into Ukraine and into Russia. Well, into Ukraine, we are uh, getting uh, news of, okay, um, um, we have our, our affiliates, we have our own um, satellite there, um, our news are not blocked. But in, in Russia, Russia. <laughs> in Russia, again, with circumvention tools, it is great because it, now with circumvention tools, we are um, seeing our traffic or our uh, digital traffic going up just because people are so hungry um, to access news and information that, has, uh, that is reliable. Yolanda, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Mina, for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.